0: Once upon a time in Jerusalem, Stephen, a deacon who had a face like an angel, was put on trial for crimes he did not commit, for things he did not teach. He stood up before a hostile gathering of hyper-religious people, and he made his own defense. And when he made his defense, he did not resort to laying out the systematic And propositional doctrines and teachings of his life. Rather, he appealed to the story of the glory of God. He told a story about the God of glory and his people starting with Abraham. And this is what he said. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you now live. And so he began his defense, not simply by telling a story of the God of glory, but also by tying the story of himself and his hearers to the story of the God of glory. And I hope that by now you realize that that's precisely what your pastors have been trying to do every week that we've stood up to preach as long as we've stood up to preach We want to tie our story to the story of the God of glory. And this is what we're doing in this series as we walk from Genesis to Revelation this year. Why do we do this? We do this because we believe that story shapes life and that story is greater than systems. Well, today we meet a man named Abram. He's the first man chosen by grace to reverse the curse and to redeem the world. To bring you up to speed on what we've seen so far, we have simply seen the downward spiral of mankind. From the sin and the fall in the garden, to the slaughter of a brother outside the garden, to the rapid spread and decay of the human race in sin to their destruction at the flood, to the scrambling of languages and the scattering of peoples from the Tower of Babel. We've seen the downward spiral of mankind anchored and weighed down by sin. And today, we see a light shining in darkness. God comes and draws near and enters into the world and he elects Abram. He chooses a man from among the nations to be a man that will participate with him in his mission in the world and represent him in his purposes in the world. But I want you to know that when God chose Abram, he didn't choose Abram because he saw in Abram a righteous and holy man. He didn't choose Abram because Abram was so good and so godly. Now, in fact, a quick background check tells us that when God drew near to Abram and chose him, Abram was living his whole life he had been living among a people that worshiped and served other gods and other idols. Like his father Terah and like his family around him, Abram participated in the worship of the moon god in Ur of the Chaldees. It's the only life he knew. There were many gods to choose from, but this is the one that was famous or well-known in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, before you pass judgment on Abram and say, well, I can't believe he was an idol worshiper, surely not. God would have chosen someone else, someone, say, less idolatrous. (laughs) But imagine if you had lived in Abram's time and grew up in his city. Would you be a worshiper of God, the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth? Or would you have worshipped one of the gods of the peoples around you? Imagine if you were born and raised in India or in Southeast Asia, in Central South America or in some other place in Africa you begin to realize that the faith that you have in Jesus Christ is a tremendous privilege granted to you by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. You see, Abram, left to his own devices and his own vices, never would have changed. He would have continued living out the faith and the life, the religion that he had known from day one. And yet... God chose him, elected him, for reasons known only to God. God drew near to him, and God changed his life. How did Abram change? How did he repent? How did he turn from idols to serve the true and living God? Where did the idea to do that even come from? It came from God. As the Apostle Paul says, what happens is God draws near and demonstrates his love to Abram while Abram was yet a sinner, while Abram was still an idol worshiper, in effect an enemy of God. God draws near and demonstrates his love to him. And it is the love of God that begins to change Abram's mind and heart and life. It is the call of grace that causes him to turn from dead idols to serve the true and living God. This is the same way every sinner changes. It's the way you changed. Maybe you weren't as conscious of it. Maybe you weren't aware of what was happening in the day or in the moment or in the season of life in which you were transformed. But it was the work of grace and love in your life that brought about this transformation in you, same as it did for Abram. So God intervenes in his life and initiates A friendship with him. Later on in the story we'll see that Abraham was called the friend of God. God is initiating not simply a relationship with him, but a friendship. Abram, let's be friends. Come walk with me. I got some stuff to show you. It's a different way of thinking of things, isn't it? Unlike the gods and the idols and. Ur of the Chaldees among the Babylonians, this God is personal and infinite. This God cares about individuals, He cares about me. He knows my name. He invites me to join Him in a mission for the life of the world. It's different, isn't it? So Abram is called to be God's friend and to walk with God in the world. A friend of mine serves as a missionary in the Middle East, and he tells me that it is not uncommon for God to reach what we would consider to be the unreachable peoples of the world in Islamic areas by appearing to them in dreams and in visions. So you might be wondering, well, how in the world did God reach Abram? There were no evangelists, there were no missionaries, no preachers of righteousness showing up in Ur of the Chaldeans. The scriptures simply say time and again that God appeared to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. God appeared to him. God revealed himself in some way. And when God appeared to him, he sent him on mission. Listen to what he says. Go from your country and your kindred And your father's house to the land that I will show you. There's nothing enticing about that. About any of that. Walk away from your heartland. Walk away from your people. Walk away from your father. Walk away from your extended family. To what? To where? I'll tell you later. It's a secret. Nothing appealing about any of this. From a fleshly point of view. This encounter with God required Abram to consider his ways and to count the cost of discipleship. It's no different than what you and I have to do on a daily basis. He has to count the cost of this call of God upon his life. Jesus put it this way to the fans that followed him around. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. God forbid anyone in the room would say, well, I already do that. I hate everyone. Now, Jesus isn't talking about having hatred and animosity towards people. What he means is you must love him more than you love anyone else, including yourself. That your love for Christ must be supreme and above all other loves that you have in the world, including the love you have for those who are nearest and dearest to you. You cannot allow anyone to stand between you and God, to stand between you and Christ, to get in the way of you obeying God's call on your life. This is the challenge that Abram faces. This is the crossroads upon which he stands. Martin Luther put it this way in his Reformation anthem, A Mighty Fortress. Let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What Abram has been called by God to do is to weigh things that are temporal versus things that are eternal. To look at all of his relations, his connections, his aspirations. And to see that at best they are fading away. That they are not lasting. And to consider that God who is eternal and living. A presence in his life is calling him to something that is eternal. Never fading and lasting forever. This is the existential faith crisis that Abram faces in this moment. Now to sweeten the deal, God promised to do amazing things for Abram. God knows how to negotiate better than any of us. And so he gives that first shot. Go out and leave everything behind. Whoa. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And notice how God centers on what he will do. He puts the burden on himself and takes it away from Abram. God puts the burden on himself by saying, I will show you a new land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor those who dishonor you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless all the families of the earth in you. You see what God is doing here is saying, Look, I've called you to go out from all of that. Why? Because of what I intend to do in you and through you for the life of the world. Deal or no deal. And Abram has to weigh this out. We're going to unpack that promise in weeks to come. But suffice it to say for now that God is calling Abram to participate in God's mission in the world for the life of the world. And what does that mean? It means that God wants him to participate in reversing the curse and rescuing the loss and redeeming the world. That was lost to sin, the flesh, and the devil. The Lord God has disrupted Abram's life, interrupted him midstream. This is what grace does. Grace does not give you a free pass to do anything and everything you wish to do with your life, grace brings you to a crossroads. And Abram is standing at a crossroads with much to consider. He has an aging father that he needs to take care of. He has a wife that he needs to care for. And by the way, she still wants children. He has a nephew that he has adopted as a kind of son that he needs to take care of, along with his nephew's family. Not to mention all of the servants, the flocks, and the herds. And then you add on top of that the fact that he's 75 years old. Now we here 75 years old and we start imagining some of the members of our church. We start imagining our grandfathers. We start imagining how the decays of nature have been working on them. We know about their creaky knees and their false teeth. We know how they moan and groan in the morning just getting out of bed. We know about the aches and pains. We know how drowsy they can get in the afternoon. That's what 75 looks like to us. But in Abram's day, 75 was middle-aged. He wasn't yet an old man. He was middle-aged. Genesis 11 tells us that his own father, Terah, was 70 years old before he started having kids, before Abram was born. So 75 and no kids... Not a problem. It just means that Abram's been building his portfolio, getting his life together, getting that little nest egg in place so he can bring children into it and he can continue on as a successful herdsman, shepherd, about to be wanderer on the face of the earth. So his perspective is changing. He's not yet an old man, but... He's faced with this existential midlife crisis. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. Some of you middle-aged guys. What's your life been about? Is it worth it? What's next? As one of my professors said midlife crisis means that one storyline begins to unravel and fade away. And it's reaching out hoping that some other storyline will be interwoven. That's where Abram is. And God is weaving in this other storyline, calling him to new things. But to do, that, to do that, he has to get out of his comfort zone. He has to give up control. He has to trust the Lord implicitly with his past, his present, and his future. That's what he's weighing out. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 11 that by faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out and he went out. The terrifying line in that scripture says, not knowing where he was going. That's faith. In Kayyem Potok's novel titled, In the Beginning, he tells the story of a Jewish family. And in one scene, there is two cousins, one older, one younger. The older cousin tells the younger cousin about a midrash that he learned about Abram. And it tells a story about how before he left Ur of the Chaldees, he smashed the heads and broke the bodies of his father's idols. Well, the little cousin was so young that he was mortified by this story because when he heard the word smashed and broken, all he could think about was the dog that had run out into the street and was run over by a car and he saw the image of that gruesome scene. And so when his older cousin told him about Abram smashing the idols and breaking the bodies of the idols, he imagined this bloody, violent scene. Not knowing that idols were made of stone and wood and other things. but As I thought about this story, I thought, spiritually speaking, that's not a stretch. Breaking with the old life requires us to put to death those things that belong to our earthly nature. This is what the gospel calls us to do. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, specifically Things related to sexual immorality and corruption. Specifically, things related to covetousness and greed. These are the dynamics of idolatry in our life. They must be put to death. They must come to a violent and bloody end. Jesus says the kingdom of God is advancing violently and violent men take hold of it. There's a kind of violence that comes with breaking from the past and entering into the future that God has for us. And this is what Abram is faced with. So as he breaks away from his father's traditions and idols and the religion of his culture, it's going to be a violent and painful break. There's a cost involved. There will be blood, sweat, and tears as he begins to obey God. So, Abram's decision to trust and obey the Lord shows that all of life is repentance. Not some of life, not just the beginning of life, but all of life is repentance. And I want you to know no matter how old or young you are or feel, or no matter if you identify as a young person or an old person, whether you're an old soul or a not so old soul, you need to know that you are never too old to learn new things. And it is never too late. To do the right thing. That's part of what this story shows us. Abram gives up control. Surrenders his life to the Lord. And he goes out not knowing where he was going. But trusting the one who was leading him. And you know what Abram didn't know when he started on this journey? The Chinese proverb says that a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. What it doesn't tell you is a journey of a thousand miles also begins with trying to explain to your wife that you don't know how long it's going to take as you uproot your entire family and way of life. And so imagine that conversation. We're spared that story. But this story actually took, took them on a journey of 1,200 miles. Not 1,200 miles by planes, trains, and automobiles, but 1,200 miles on foot. And not 1,200 miles on feet that are covered in Tevas, Birkenstocks, Nikes, or your favorite brand of shoe. 1,200 miles on sandals, crude sandals, ancient sandals. Not on nicely paved highways, but dusty roads and trails. 1,200 miles. And on this journey, Abram passes through the major cities of the world Babylon, Nineveh, Carchemish, Becca, Aleppo, Damascus. He passes by all the megachurches in those cities. The worship centers of Nana, Utu, Enlil, Baal, Marduk, Ishtar, and many, many more. In other words, as Abram walks with God on this journey, he sees all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. Day after day, month after month, making this journey. He sees the best that the world has to offer and also the worst that it has to offer. He sees the kingdoms of men with all of their centers of money, sex, and power. All allurements, all temptations. At any point along the journey, he could have said, we've come far enough. This looks like a great place to settle down. The real estate values here are wonderful. This looks like a comfortable place. Wonderful school system. I like this mega center where we could all worship and just do shopping across the street. At any point along the way, he could have stopped. He could have given in to temptations to say, this is far enough. The city of man is all I need. But as a stranger and an exile on the earth, trusting and obeying the Lord, he determined that the metropolis and the marketplace and the megachurch of this life would never, ever satisfy his soul. The city of man is temporal and shadowy, destined to ruin and failure, destined to collapse and decay over time. But what was Abram looking for? The Spirit of God tells us that he was looking for the city of God, designed and built by God on eternal foundations. He's looking for a city that will last. A place of permanent Residents to bring his home, bring his family, to build his life. What about you? What are you looking for? What do you want out of this life or the life to come? What are your concerns? Are they simply for the kingdom of man, for the city of man? Are you fascinated by global events? Concerned that the world is shaking and crumbling and falling down around you? What are you seeking after? What do you want? What will you do to get it? And how far would you go to see it? Abram went as far as it took. After months and months of walking, Abram and Sarai and all who were with them finally arrived at their destination. And what did they see? They saw echoes and hints of the Garden of Eden. They saw a foretaste of the promised land flowing with milk and honey. saw a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth. This is the place God has for us. There's one way of reading the story where we might simply think this is just another plot point on the map showing us where Abram went. But if we read the story spiritually and sacramentally, we see something else taking place here. We see that what God has done is he has taken a man that he has chosen, a man that he loves, a man that is his friend, and he has walked with that friend from the far east, way outside of Eden, far away, and he's led him all the way back home. He's taken him out of exile back to his homeland. He's taken him away from the desert to a garden to these trees in Shechem to the oak of Moray, where God appeared to him. And the echoes of what we had in the Garden of Eden now come flooding back to our minds, do they not? When God drove man from the garden, he separated him from the tree of life so that man would not reach out and eat of that tree and live forever. But God promised that he would Put things to right and make it so that man could come home and eat with him once again. And so what we see here is not simply black and white trivia playing out in front of us. What we see in the context of the story is something deeply spiritual and sacramental. That when they arrive at this place, we are to hear the story and see the story in this way. To know that God is keeping his promise to send the seed of the woman into the world to crush the serpent's head. That God is putting the world to right and bringing his people from far east of Eden back to their homeland. To restore his people to the tree of life in the center of the garden. It's not much to look at right now. One oak tree in the center of this world. But it's a sacramental reminder that God is not only a promise maker, but a promise keeper. God will make a way to bring his people back into fellowship with him, to eat and drink with him again in the city of God. What is Abram's response to this? Abram's response is that he builds an altar in this place and he calls on the calls on the name of the Lord. He builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. And this is the pattern of Abram's life. This is the rhythm and the routine of his life going forward. Now that he has arrived in the land that God promised to show him, now he's in this sacred space. And what does he do throughout this sacred space? Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. We learn from Abram that the worship of the true and living God is priority one in his life. Before he erects his tent, before he settles down his sheep and cattle, before he takes care of the livestock and everyone around him, he builds an altar and worships God. Worship is priority one. It's not an option. It's not something he can do if he has time. If the day doesn't get away, it's priority one. And it's so important to know this because Jesus tells us that God the Father is actively seeking people who will live like this. Actively seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I want to encourage you, if you've been lax in this, if you've struggled to make it a priority in your life, you need to walk in the footsteps of your father Abraham. Which means walk in the footsteps of his faith as he worships the true and living God. Last thing I want to say about this is fundamental to our life in Christ, but note what happens at the end of the story. He calls on the Lord. Don't just breeze past that as if it were throwaway words or fly over land. He calls on the Lord. The significance of that cannot be overstated, because he lives in a time and place where no one else, to our knowledge, is doing this. In the days of Seth, man man began to call on the name of the Lord, but we saw the downward spiral of things, and the fact that Abram is now calling on the name of the Lord means that God has established a people once again in the world, that he's bringing salvation To those who call upon his name, changing the lives of sinners. It also shows us that no matter how old or young you are, it's never too late to call on the name of the Lord. A few minutes ago, I was down in the basement with some guys, and they told me a story about a man who was 93 years old that they just heard. 93 years old, and he had lived his whole life in rejection of Christ and the gospel. But towards the end of his life, someone told him the story of Jesus and he repented his sins and he called on the name of the Lord and received Christ as Savior. And three weeks later, he passed away and met Christ face to face. And in the words of the man who just told me this story, the punchline was, we don't care how you get here and we don't care when you get here, what we care about is Is that you get here. And that man came. Not too early. Not too late. But on God's time. And so I want to encourage you. Call on the name of the Lord. And know that he answers. Everyone who calls. Puts no one to shame. But if you call on the name of the Lord. You will be saved. This is the grace and the mercy of God in the world. His love towards sinners. And if you haven't done so, consider doing so today in obedience to the Spirit and the Bride who say, come and trust him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. God, our Savior, we pray that your Spirit will move among us to grant us.